This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. So we're celebrating the Buddha this weekend. We, uh, the three of us hatched that as a title over, I think it was a tea break in the last Metro Communities meeting, or two or three Metro Communities meetings ago. So we're celebrating the Buddha. The question is, which Buddha? Is the Buddha of history? So you can imagine a um, historical figure with the patched robes, walking barefoot in the <coughs> dust of North India, through the seasons, the cold, the monsoon, the heat. Um, there's a Buddha of our imaginations. There's a Buddha we find in the texts. That doesn't solve it because then you have to ask which text. There's a huge range of Buddhas that are presented by all these different texts. If you look at the historical and the imaginative Buddha, I'm going to say they're not really different. So the historical Buddha is imagined as well. So that Buddha you've been imagining, thinking about the dust, the feet, the robes, He's not immediately visible. He's not here in this room. He's in our heads. He's in our minds, our hearts. He's in our imagination. So we're thinking of him. He's also imaginative. And there's also the problem of being so many historical Buddhas. Yeah? He keeps changing. There's a 19th century Buddha who was a rational alternative to Jesus. Uh, he was meek and mild. You've got Paul Caro's book, uh, The Gospel of the Buddha, haven't you? This rational, meek and mild Buddha preaching the gospel of the common sense. And today, more often, he's a neurologist. He's amazingly ahead of his time in all these discoveries. How did he do it? <laughs> there he is, preaching a secular mindfulness and preaching brain science. So each generation selects from the chaos before it. Yeah? And we order the world around us. We shape the world by our priorities. We shape it by a particular perspective. And we produce our myths. Myths are the stories that we tell ourselves that give things meaning. History is one of our stories. It's one of our modern myths. It's a big part of our culture's response to this, I suppose. It's the way we order our experience. It's the way we give meaning to things. So that's collectively... And individually as well, we each produce our own stories. They're mostly hidden, even to ourselves. We're running in these deep patterns, things we've picked up, things we've imbibed, things that motivate us, that shape our yearnings, that shape our actions. So here's your first question. What's your stories? I'm brought to mind, um, I think it's when we were first coming along, me and Pramudita, going to the Going for Refugee Treats, there was a saying... Uh, People were quoting Sun Ra. You remember Sun Ra? Sort of a 50s, 60s jazz musician who would appear on stage with an enormous silver outfit and a crown like a sun. And he would tell us in all conviction that he was from the planet Venus and he was going to save humanity. It's a bit like Scientology with rhythm. Yeah. So his, there's a saying that went around at the time which was, history is his story, mystery is my story. My story. I can't do the accent. So when we look at imagination, 
we're becoming aware of the stories we tell ourselves. This is what we do when we, when this movement, anyway, when we look and talk about imagination, work the imagination. We're looking at the ways we shape our experience. We're starting to become conscious of that and noticing the effect that these ways have on the quality of our lives. And we're learning how to work creatively with this. We're becoming aware of this process and we're learning to steer it to the positive. So the word imagination is never far from old FWO, new Turinatna discourse, but it's in the air for the last three years since um, Subhuti and Sangharaksha wrote Reimagining the Buddha. In a way, this talk is a, is a gloss to that. So these are my little notes I've scribbled in the margin of that paper. So in the last three years, there's been endless talks put up on Free Buddhist Audio from all sorts of centres and different perspectives around that. And if you follow out from that, you go back to uh, all its references, don't you? There's William Blake, there's Coleridge, there's lots of philosophy, there's lots of poetry, aesthetics, there's a whole field of imaginal psychology. There's lots of interesting and useful stuff. But what, let's do this. Let's follow the good old Buddhist habit of avoiding too much speculation, avoiding tidy maps, and coming back to what's right going on right here, coming back to our experience and seeing what we notice. Notice what's going on. So there's a perceptual situation going on. We're noticing stuff. There's stuff out there, objects, people, we pay more attention, there's colours, there's sound, and inwardly we notice there's thoughts, there's feelings. So if we stick with this, if we stick with this actual experience, we notice our perception is central. We are sitting in the middle of it all. What's that Cabot Zen book title? Whatever you go, there you are. It's very handy for talking about meditation, especially meta. Um, you explain the first stage of the meta bhavana and you say now you want to get away from things and you get on your plane and you fly to Thailand and you get off onto the beach and you sit on the beach and the first thing you notice is you you spend thousands of pounds or two this, you're still with you yeah. so Buddhism stays with this perceptual situation yeah. it, it produces maps down the generations all these different traditions in Buddhism produces maps of the five skandhas six elements the Abhidharma the six senses six sense objects the six sense consciousnesses there's a Yogacara the eight consciousnesses and they're all maps of the perceptual situation in the Buddhist perspective the perceptual situation is integral to the way things are we can get right back to page one of Buddhism we can go back to the first two verses of Dhammapada Experiences are preceded by mind, led by mind, and produced by mind. If one speaks or acts with an impure mind, suffering follows even as the cartwheel follows the hoof of the ox. Experiences are preceded by mind, led by mind, and produced by mind. If one speaks or acts with a pure mind, happiness follows like a shadow that never departs. Mm. The mind is primary. Experiences are preceded by mind. Our experience of all this stuff, outer and inner stuff, is being strongly shaped by our mind. It follows this mind. It's led by it. Our experiences are shaped by our intention. The Buddhist mind, 
The way Buddhism looks at the mind is that's a mind of intention. We are led by our intending mind. So what's bringing you to this experience here and there? What are, sorry, what are you bringing to this experience here and there? What is your mind leading you to? You're sitting here, and you're looking at one particular picture in the room more than another, and you're noticing one or two people in the room more than another. And can you notice your interest leading you? You notice it's shaping your experience. But three years ago, I had uh, operations on cataracts in my eyes. So cataracts are a fascinating process of the lens of your eye turning opaque. You know, an old uh, plastic bottle, the base of a bottle, out in the sun too long, and it gets milky, gets white. That's what happened to the, the lenses of my eyes. And the operation is when they deftly cut in there. If you really trust the National Health Service at this moment. And uh, remove the cataract because it's just it's getting away with the vision. And since the 60s, they've got very clever and have learned to put plastic lenses in. So I'm now looking at you through you know, partly uh, cyborg technology, looking through the artificial eyes. And um, so I started to see the world around me was changing. It was becoming lovely film noir. Yeah. It's lovely light and shades. If you stood up in front of the window, you'd just be an outline. Yeah. There was a series, uh, Valdemar Janicek on TV, on the Impressionists. He set out to, to show that Impressionists were revolutionary, wasn't he? He was, he was, he was berating the, bis- the, the, the chocolate box use of the Impressionists. And he's talking about late Monet, and Monet developed uh, cataracts. And some of these big paintings, you mean? with those eyes so he wanted to show the viewer what this looked like so they got this uh, soft gravy coloured lens and put it on the camera and went ah that's it you know I should show this to everybody this is what it looks like seeing with cataracts but it's a bit different it's obvious on TV you're sitting watching TV and it's a thing to be seen oh a view of cataract through cataract eyes it's different when it's the whole of your perception but it's a way of seeing. It's not a thing to be seen, but it's a way you're seeing. Most of the time, I was quite convinced it was all quite normal. It's all quite normal. It's, this is a wall, this is a person, it's all just as it always has been. And I wasn't aware of my poor eyesight until <coughs> normality broke down. And then I became aware of what I wasn't seeing. I'd be talking to people and noticing that I wasn't noticing all these nuances in the face that are telling emotions which is a real drawback when you're working in a Buddhist centre. <laughs> Someone's crying and you're trying to work out from big hand gestures what's going on. The pavement is not there at night. Yeah. Um, trying to work out to cross the road and there's just these beautiful mandalas of light. Remember the old hippie thing used to hang up that made diffracted light and big prisms and going, what's between the car and what is the car? Yeah. Just getting these headlights and filling everything. And misrecognising people, seeing two or three Dana Priyas say, and go, no, no, he's down in Deal, he's not in Sucky Hall Street. You know? And kind of realising that I'm making it up. Yeah. It's fascinating, just going back to the scandals, going back to, ah, habit and labelling are taking over. Rupa, form, sense input is not happening much, and I'm making it up. I'm constructing through my habits and through my labelling and identity. 
and I'm not even noticing it, or I'm starting to notice it. Insufficient data input, you make it up on your own. And that's, that's it's slowly sinking, it's becoming all normal again, but I still don't fully trust what's out here. I know it's not a given, it's not just as it appears. So it's in these glitches of experience that we notice how much our imagination shapes things and how much it presents the world to us. So it's in these differences, say, when you're in deep meditation and you come out of deep meditation and then you've got a number of minutes while your normality reasserts. Paying attention and noticing the changes. Noticing the changes of the world. Changes in colour. Senses, changes in your sense of space and this difference between what's in here and what's out there notice the mutability of facts so we're creating our world but it's not a naive positive thinking it's not just sitting down and denying an objective world and imagining that whatever you imagine think or wish for will happen we'll all still grow old and die but the quality of our mind will utterly shape how we die. There's a raw data there. It's almost like your experience, what you're perceiving is like the rough clay. You can shape it one way or another. The great Kagyu master, Milarepa, my religion is to live and die without regret. The writer Anais Nin says, uh, we do not see things as they are, we see things as we are. So this mind and its resultant experiences are dynamic. If you look, you'll see that everything is changing. All this stuff we're noticing, we're perceiving. There's no graspable substance amongst it. <coughs> it's ever changing. There's nothing solid. There's nothing permanent to get hold of. Nothing is sorted. And this weekend, I'm, I'm staying in Surita's room when he's away. And uh, it's quite at home. It's a bit like my room. It's his stuff. But it's as much stuff as, as I'm used to. There's all these things around about. There's other, <coughs> there's other book titles like "Treat Your Own Knees" and uh, "The Memoirs of a Sorcerer" and thousands of other. A real rich world. He has a shrine at his window, and so he's sitting down, probably that little block. He sits with his, his yogi body, and he sits. And there's a mirror right in front of him. So here's his his Buddha. Here's a mirror with him in it. There's a big yellow post-it just stuck there, which in big, bold letters says, Provisional Flux. This is the title for this mirror image of himself. So in all this flow of mental events, thoughts, feelings, desires, annoyances, in all these objects we experience around us, there's no given. Nothing just is. There's no essence. No matter how quiet and still we get, we won't find that inner core. We won't find a self. We won't even find a no-self. Buddhism doesn't deal in being and non-being, but in becoming. It doesn't deal in is's and isn'ts. <laughs> it doesn't deal in is and isn't. Everything is changing, moving, dynamic. And things in Buddhism, to Buddhist terms, are to be understood in terms of tendencies, habit and effects, rather than states and natures. I'll just find page 7. 
There it is. So, flow, change, but it's not random. There's patterns to it. Nothing happens but chance. Our experiences are rising and depends upon conditions. And these dynamic, tending minds are shaping our action, and our actions are shaping our experience. Back to that Dhammapada verse. If one speaks or acts with a pure mind, happiness follows. So we're making this experience. We make it so. That's the title of this talk from Jean-Luc Picard. For better or for worse. One of the metro classes I take has just finished the Know Your Mind book, study on that. It took us about six months to plough our way through. It's one of those uh, study modules in the metro class where it's bamboozlement and resistance, and then at a certain point something clicks and everyone gets really excited. There's other modules people just go, this is interesting, this is interesting, this is interesting. This one sort of goes, no, 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 oh my goodness. This is one of those. Um, it's Sangharaksha's book on the Abhidharma. And it's got lots of stuff in it. I think it's a commentary on a commentary on a commentary on a commentary. So it's really, really rich. Uh, it's a detailed map of the mind. A detailed map of mental events. And it's a dynamic map. It's a dynamic model. And sees mental events as tendencies. It's interested in where they go. Interested in what effect they have. The events listed are grouped into skillful and unskillful. They're not value neutral. They're not just as they are. Every aspect marked in the Abhidharma, and illustrated with Bantin's book, has an ethical value. So Sangharaksha sums it up with the psychological dimension of ethics in Buddhism. So using this text, you become aware of the pattern of the mind. You become aware of your mental events, your thoughts, your feelings. Come aware of their tendencies, you become aware of where they're leading, and you choose. So awareness is noticing that you have a choice, that you have the freedom to act responsibly. Awareness is a moral imperative. Otherwise, it's not being all that aware. You're not seeing the implications of things in their fullness. And know your mind, uh, proceeding and accompanying every skillful event, is shradha. It's this lovely word. It's one of these words, shraddha or sadha, that doesn't quite translate. You can translate it as faith, but some of us might find that a bit religious. You can translate it as confidence or trust, but others might find that a bit reasonable and ordinary. So take your pick. I like the Buddhist creative etymology. Uh, Buddhist creative etymology is where the etymology is a bit wrong. It's cheating, but what it builds is really good spiritual teaching. So I'm not sure how accurate this is, but Shraddha is creatively etymologicalized as placing the heart upon. First of all, that points out that the mind we're talking about is also the heart. And also, faith is being wholeheartedly engaged and moving towards. It's placing the weight of your heart on something. And when you do this, you can't but act. The choice we have is between the skillful and the unskillful. In the Buddhist revel- the Buddha's revolution was to put ethics at the heart of the spiritual life. He took the word karma, which previously had meant a ritual action that brought about blessings from the gods, and he shifted that to one of intentional action, which brings about consequences. He shifted it from 
the magical or the religious onto the ethical. In the old texts and the suttas, he repeatedly encourages people to ask the different wandering men, wandering holy men, Brahmins, to sort of noise them up with these questions. What is good? What is bad? What is blameworthy and what is blameless? What should be practised and should not be practised? What, when done, leads to my lasting harm and suffering? And what, when done, leads to my lasting welfare and happiness? So he's getting them to ask what leads to a fulfilled and a happy life and what leads to a miserable one? So we become aware that we have a choice. The choice of a fairly lifeless and meaningless passivity without purpose, drifting from one stone to the other from Pingia. Here's Frank Zappa being a bit firm. If you wind up with a boring, miserable life because you listen to your mom, your dad, your teacher, your priest, or some guy on TV telling you what to do, then you deserve it. (laughs) 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 Or there's a choice to respond with awareness, skillfully, with initiative, to make a world of meaning and significance, a dynamic living world. And no one's saying that's easy. It's going to be hard. Here be dragons, as we keep mentioning. Here's Catherine Rayner putting it another way, in Amo Ergo Sun. Because I love, the sun pours out its rays of living gold, pours out its gold and silver on the sea. Because I love, the earth upon her astral spindle winds, her ecstasy-producing dance. Because I love, clouds travel in the winds through wide skies, skies wide and beautiful, blue and deep. Because I love, wind blows white sails. The wind blows over flowers, the sweet wind blows. Because I love, the ferns go green, and green the grass, and green the transparent sunlit trees. Because I love, larks rise up from the grass, and all the leaves are full of singing birds. Because I love, the summer air quivers with a thousand wings. Myriads of jeweled eyes burn in the light. Because I love the iridescent shells upon the sand takes forms as fine and intricate as thought. Because I love there is an invisible way across the sky. Birds travel by that way. The sun and moon and all the stars travel that path by night. Because I love there is a river flowing all night long. Because I love all night the river flows into my sleep. Ten thousand living things are sleeping in my arms and sleeping wake and flowing are at rest. So our Buddhist practices are ways of making meaning and significance. We've got the metta bhavna, which creates value. I remember the first time I got it, or I should say I got it a bit more. I came out of the Glasgow Buddhist Centre after morning meditation maybe. And walking along Sucky Hall Street, which is a busy shopping street in Glasgow. And I looked up and saw lots and lots of people and realised everybody matters. And I went, oh, that's, that's it, is that meta? <laughs> There's a mindfulness of breathing. We're deepening the significance of each experience, each breath, unifying our intending minds. We're giving direction and wholeheartedness, brain, focusing that intending mind just by using the most obvious thing we've got 
of breath. There's a precepts undertaking ethical training principles. Another way of bringing value. Or we're cultivating the ability to act in accordance with how things are. Unfixed, dynamic, changing, or even more basic, full of other people. This picture that we're doing last night, cultivating the positive emotions of worship, salutation, going for refuge, confession. We're enacting out the path like a subtle theatre. We're acting as if. We're deepening our engagement with the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. We're practising bhavana. We're cultivating, developing, becoming. We're directing and strengthening the skillful flow, the skillful option of our mind and heart. It's a gradual, broad, systematic course of making it so. To sum this up in the hand gesture that I've, uh, I've stolen from Damarati, he's got the ability to simplify things down to very core, experiential ways. So it's a choice of whether we close, as a hand gesture one, we close the dynamic nature of things, we fix and grasp round experiences, we literalise, we limit, or we open to it, and respond appropriately. So, so far I've looked at our deep roots of imagination. Level one of imagination. I noticed when I took the cataract operations and took blindness to notice. The shaping and building of the very world that we're in, we're inhabiting, (coughs) without us knowing it. And I've looked at our higher imagination, when we do know it, when we become aware of our choices, and we act creatively. We become artists working with the clay rather than just putting up with it as we find it. We cultivate the quality of our experience. So I'm going to move on to the task, imagining the Buddha. So first of all, our personal motivation. What brought you here to Padmaloka? What brought you into this room with a huge Buddha in the middle of it? What positive experience? One of expansiveness? Brightening, change, freedom, after a meditation, after a talk. What was it? Increasing value, initiative, calm, clarity. What's led you here? What is it you're wanting more of? And what makes that clearer for you? Is it an image, a story, a text, a poem, a mantra? beginners courses at Glasgow Centre when we do the life of the Buddha and we bring in the Kisha Gotami story or the Angulimala story you see the room change that kindness of the Buddha and that is an image, something's caught so what's yours? what's the focus for your intention? the focus for your yearning? what rallies it and gives it shape? or another way what do you love? what have you brought with you in your wallet? What's by your bed? Is it a picture about your family or a lover? A Buddha? Bodhisattva? What do you wear? A ring or a locket or a bracelet? (laughs) Have you got a stone from that beach or that mountain top? Is it a picture of the Arsenal lineup? (laughs) What is powerful enough to focus the intention of your mind? What to use Alaka's words when he's describing this room, the artist that painted these things. What is your compelling image? 
Here's Yeats, Irish poet Yeats. The only two powers that trouble the deep are religion and love. The others make a little trouble on the surface. In the Buddhist tradition, what focuses it is imagining the Buddha. This is this term, Buddhanusati, which can mean mindfulness of the Buddha, recollection of the Buddha, or just as validly imagining the Buddha. It's a practice of cultivating a focus on the qualities of the enlightened human being. And this, according to the scholar Paul Williams, is the central Buddhist practice. It's what has been done the most by most Buddhists down the centuries. In the oldest texts, we have examples of bearing the mind, bearing in mind the Buddha in his absence. Yesterday, Alokadara took us deftly through the story of Pingya. He was hundreds of miles away from his teacher, the person that changed his life, but he was still with him. We've been doing the Tiratnavandana, a practice of recollecting the Buddha, of reciting qualities, a list of qualities of the Buddha, descriptions of the Buddha. There's a story of Ananda returning home after the Buddha's death, after the Buddha's Parnavana. There's a little hut he'd been sharing previously with the Buddha, and he uh, cleans the area, he arranges the Buddha's robe and bow, he offers flowers, and he's paying his respects just as if he was still there. And this carried on. This became the shrine at the heart of Indian monasteries, Buddhist monasteries. Those big brick structures at Nalanda, where you go in the door, and there's all the courtyard with all the little cells round, two beds in each. Just like Gukhi Loka, a bit bigger. And then up here was the shrine, the sort of development of that little spot that Ananda had left, that he produced and was still devoted to. Part of the monasteries were the title deeds were in the name of the Buddha. He, he owned them. Yeah. And this carried on, this developed into a shrine room, developed into this. This is the descendant of a little pile of flowers and that folded robe of Ananda. Later on, Sukhavati Buha Sutras, the Happy Land Array Sutras, a big depiction of visualising beautiful space of jewels, archetypal forms. Uh, within the middle of it is the Buddha, the Buddha Amitabha, this chap up here, sitting, teaching the Dharma. Tantric sadness, elaborate meditations evoking <coughs> the multicoloured dimension of the enlightenment. And then us, onto us in the Sri Ratna community. There's a Buddha image on each shrine at the heart of each Buddha centre. There's quite a variety of styles, but there it is, at the heart of the Buddha center. sits the Buddha. And then at our ordinations, we're giving a visualization of sadhana practice. All that yearning, all that focus, all that what led us here is being held and focused and taken deeper by usually an image of some aspect of enlightenment, going back to the Buddha himself. All of this is based on the principle of what you dwell on, you become. Down the centuries, the Buddha was dwelled on in many ways. There's the imageless, the iconic phase, where the Buddha was evoked by empty spaces. Um, in Sanshi, in, in, in an old stupa in kind of middle India somewhere. I remember getting off a train and going to see it. And there it was. And there's the lovely friezes, carvings. The amazing ability to know anatomy and make figures work. So it wasn't technical limitation. 
And they're all focusing and worshipping something in the middle, which is a space or a symbol. It's as if in this first few centuries the Buddha had been such a presence, just as Ananda had felt the Buddha still there when, after the Paranavana, that they were dwelling with that. They were creating this, holding this space that was full of the memories of the significance of the Buddha. Reminds me of uh, the Bodhidhaka's phrase. Bodhidhaka's from Dublin, and we were swapping uh, idiosyncratic phrases from the west of Scotland and from Ireland. His one was great. And I looked back in the room, and there he was, gone. <laughs> that's not a depiction of nothing, that's a depiction of presence. So, for two, two centuries, Buddhists looked back in the room, and there he was, gone. Sound. Connecting with sound, repeating the name of the Buddha, mantras. In Japan, you'll find mandalas, big geometric arrangements of aspects of enlightenment. And where normally you have little figures of the Buddhas, there you have letters, there you have sounds. What is it? Hong, Tran, Hri, Ah, Om. And traditions like the Pure Land School, you have shrines with the Nimbutsu, the Salutation to the Buddha Amitabha, beautiful calligraphy, rather than a Buddha. So that's the Buddha brought to mind through sound. And of course, the most common one we're most familiar with, visible human form, the statue of the Buddha, everywhere from shrines to garden centres. There's the Buddha in human form, and in the painted icon. So each is a metaphor, each is a symbol of the enlightened human being. The awakened person. This human aspect is important. It connects the Buddha, the actuality of enlightenment, with us, the potential for enlightenment. As the threefold puja puts it, the Buddha was born as we are born. What the Buddha attained, we too can attain. The Roman atheist Lucretius argued against gods. He's one of the heroes of neo-atheists. And one of his arguments was, if dogs made temples, they would put a dog statue on the shrine. So you can imagine a dog-shaped Zeus or something. Whatever that does for the gods, it's important for Buddhas. It's important for Buddhists that what we venerate relates to us. I'm imagining dog Buddhists sitting. And it would make perfect sense for dog Buddhists to have a dog on the shrine. The Buddha looks like us. That's important. We choose the Buddha. Once again, we make it so. Imagining the Buddha is an active process. We choose to give the Buddha meaning in our own lives. We take the initiative and decide to dwell on him in order to become more like him. It's up to us where the Buddha is a moderately interesting spiritual teacher amongst many, a flat fact that we can compare with other flat facts, or whether he's the fulfilment of the human heart. He's the centre of the cosmos, the highest purpose and goal of the cosmos, the living, illuminating heart of life. It's up to us. This clears up a lot of problems. It clears up problems of comparative religion, clashing paradigms, where we're trying to decide what's the very, very best religion to follow, what's the very, very best Buddhist movement or tradition or teachings to follow. We take responsibility for our own lives. We choose a way and we make it work. As the chant goes in Glasgow, 
day something, day something, day something, which means do something. <laughs> but a, bit, a bit more threatening. <laughs> if you're not playing foot, football very well, you start hearing this from the terraces. Here's a poem by everybody's favourite, Jalaladin Rumi. These spiritual window shoppers who idly ask, How much is that? Oh, I'm just looking. They handle a hundred items and put them down. Shadows with no capital. What is spent is love and two eyes wet with weeping. But these walk into a shop and their whole lives pass suddenly in that moment, in that shop. Where did you go? Oh, nowhere. What did you have to eat? Nothing much. Even if you don't know what you want, buy something to be part of the exchanging flow. Start a huge, foolish project like Noah. It makes absolutely no difference what people think of you. So years ago, when I first came along to this Buddhist movement, there was a lot of enthusiasm for the language of going for refuge, of commitment. You'd be accused of, where's your commitment? On regular occasions. It was all a bit more go-getting, a bit more active. Now this reading I'm going to read was popular. It found its way to the front of one of the publications. It just took up the whole front page. And it's been misattributed to Goethe. It's actually by the mountaineer W.H. Murray from his book, The Scottish Himalayan Expedition. Vim Lovaggio was very keen to point this out and he had the book. and He was trying to clear up the movement of its, its misquotation. Here it is. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy. The chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. At the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events, issues from the decision raising in one's favour all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no man could have dreamt would have come his way. I have learnt a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. Whatever you can do, or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power and magic in it. Going for refuge is central to the Triratna approach. We make an active individual commitment to the Buddha, to the Dharma and to the Sangha. It's up to us to make it so. It's up to us to make it work. And when we move, providence moves too. So the more wholeheartedly we go for refuge, the more the Buddha will appear. The Buddha is not a fixed fact. He cannot be understood by being observed impartially. This is not a university, it's a Buddhist retreat centre. There is no bird's eye view in Buddhism. These images, the image of the Buddha, is not descriptive, it's evocative. I like the word icon. It's actually just Greek for image, although if we're being respectful to our elders, the English word image is Greek for icon, isn't it? Because the other way round. <coughs> icon has associations. It ties us in with the whole Western tradition of sacred image. The art of rendering the invisible, visible. The icon is the middle way between idolatry 
and iconoclasm. I might have to apologise for the terminology. You might be a bit twitchy with the word idolatry due to your upbringing or your education, but I like it. And there's three eyes and the three cents. So it makes it work well. With idolatry, you're fixing on the image as an end in itself. It's a literalising. Taking it as a flat fact and grasping it. This is what the Buddha was really like. All the other ways must be wrong. And it's rare amongst us moderns, though, to do this with images. But we do do it with meditation techniques. <coughs> this is really the way it works. We uh, misunderstand the Satipatthanas, the only way to deliverance. This is the one true way. And I've got one Sutta Pali Canon. We take techniques as narrow ends in themselves. And there is a tendency to be a bit idolatrous with formlessness. We can take that as the real way in itself, the real end in itself. Truer or deeper, or absolutely more real than form. Iconoclasm, on the other hand, is the destruction of icons. That's what it means. It's the uh, smashing off of all the heads of the Virgin Mary in the Lady Chapel in Ely by the Puritans. Yeah, it's the Taliban's blowing up of, of um, Kabul, old Buddhas in the... Uh, mm in the museum, so on. Iconoclasm's also treating the image literally, treating it also as a flat fact, but pushing it away rather than grasping at it. This is false. This is in the way of what really matters. It must be destroyed. The icon is the middle way between is and isn't, between the idolatry, between the iconoclasm. An icon, an image leads you beyond what is presented to you. I love the fact that nowadays we've got icons in our computers. Which is a little picture that if you click on, opens up into files, programs, the whole internet. So, you can take this this way. An icon is a gateway into something more than our current experience. It's dynamic. An icon, an image, changes as you change. It grows as you grow. It involves you. It's a relation between you and the greater reality. It's a symbol for If you look at these images, Alaka calls himself a medieval cubist. So there's a Byzantine elements in it. Um, they've been worked out by Alaka, and there's layers of cleverness and things happening. Take White Tara, her eyes. This multi-dimensional eyes are front on, slightly at the side. This image. There's going to have to be a picture up in Free Buddhist Audio of this image. There's so many talks referring to it. This big statue here. We all come in, and Sanganista yesterday afternoon was describing the range of people's responses to it. I looked at it, I usually sit about here, and uh, the first few retreats going, I don't, can't make sense of this. First impression, it's completely new. I'd never seen anything like it. I'm going, is it like that artist Moerk that makes the giant faces? What is going on? And, but the forehead doesn't fit with the chin and, and the nose doesn't fit with anything. And It wasn't settling. What it was, there's several perspectives at once. It was throwing me and not letting me break. It was breaking up my habit, our habits, of fixing a static thing out there. There it is. That's what the Buddha looks like. This is constantly throwing me. 
is Manjushri's book up the back, where the front of the book that's nearer you is smaller than the back of the book that's further away. And what this does is brings Manjushri into the room. And then from that I looked around and went, they're all in the room. There's devices in there to bring the figure into the room. Um, I love my BBC documentaries. And one of them, I think my all-time favourite is Andrew Graham Dixon's The Art of Eternity. It's a three-parter. He does these three-parters about the art of England, the art of the Netherlands and so on. This one's about him tracing uh, early Christian art from the Coptics through Byzantine up to Cimabue and, uh, and Giotto. So in the middle one, he's wandering around looking at Orthodox churches and he's standing in the mosaics in Ravenna. He's finding surviving monasteries in, in Constantinople, Istanbul. And he's trying to get, you know, he's being in his Western art critic training and getting into it and trying to understand it. And he meets an icon painter, a contemporary icon painter in Athens, who gets out the charcoal and goes up to this wall and starts drawing things just like Manjushri's book, where <coughs> the back of the house is bigger than the front of the house, where the knee nearer you is bigger than the knee further away. And he says, it brings the image out. And he says, it ties in with old the Neoplatonist philosophy in which, you see, this phrase he says, knowledge is participation. And that just sunk in. I thought, this is the corner of my talk. Knowledge is participation. Yeah. They aren't windows that you look through. Yeah. Before, before Picasso, you would have pictures which you're looking through the window. Remember these perspective lines you drew when you were at school? They are coming into the room. They're drawn so that the image is in front of the picture plane of the board. And this makes you in the picture. This makes you participate. You're invited in. You're not an impartial viewer. There's no bird's eye view in Buddhism. The image, the icon, the Buddha is in many, many forms because we are in many, many forms. And it's not just visual, which is rationally one of the hardest things to get a non-visual image, but there it is. I remember when I became Buddhist, I was reading Sangharachita's Three Jewels and there's a description of a leaf-changing colour. First it's green, then it's brown, then it rots away. And he's illustrating the insubstantiality of things by saying there's no leaf that changes, there's just change. And looking back, something went click in my head. <laughs> After that, I was a Buddhist. Before that, I wasn't. Something that changed, that met what I was looking for to explain the confusion of like, trying to make sense of the world. A month later, I went back up to the Buddhist centre in Glasgow. It was Padmasamva Day with the red colours and the candles and skulls and lots of pictures and this fascinating image of Padmasamva with the staff and the hat and the skull cup and the vajra and so on. And that just caught. You know, I became fascinated. It's like love at first sight. There was two distinct images, one visual and the other in text that won me over to Buddhism. Those were heady days in the summer of 1983. I've got a friend in Glasgow who's got a photo of a particular Gandhara statue of the Buddha. It's quite a little image. I think he saw it in a Christie's catalogue from New York or something. And that just caught him much more. He didn't know much about Buddhism at the time. 
and it's led him into finding out more and more about Buddhism. He's now got T-shirts made up with this image of it that goes about with it. It reminds me of uh, he met something that wasn't stressful. He met something that wasn't horrid. Like Yasha the playboy in the, in the Sutta who flees the drunken party saying, it's horrid, it's horrid. Runs into the forest and the Buddha in the middle of the forest quite calmly just hears his voice. Yasha hears his voice saying, here it is not horrid. So from a friend that image was here it is not horrid. I've got another friend who's been sitting quietly and steadily reflecting in the Heart Sutra for 30 years. As he puts it, using concepts to go beyond concepts. It's something like 30 lines, but it's like a gateway into really deep contemplation, really deep meditation. So each is a gateway into a profounder space, a deeper way of relating, more real, more true than where we stand now. So your question is, what has caught you? So I'm talking about a relationship that you're invited to participate in. This relationship is transcendent. Through it we move to our, beyond ourselves as we currently are. It leads us beyond ourselves to grow into something higher, something more. <coughs> I've been reflecting while writing this talk. Um, it keeps coming up this modern language of needs. And I thought, if what I'm saying here is true, then transcendence is our one true need. There's a whole talk in there, isn't there? I'd like to end with two themes in this area of imagining the Buddha. Presence and absence. So the presence of the Buddha. When we fully attend, when we take the initiative and we turn up in body and speech and mind, when we're wholly engaged, the Buddha responds from his side. And you're perfectly free to take this as poetically or as literally as you want. <laughs> When the Buddha attained enlightenment, he set off a change of consequences that went down through time, down through person to person to here, to where we're sitting. There's this great stream of activity. We see it as the Buddha's compassion that is reaching out to us deluded, suffering beings. So when you meet a sutra, when you come across an image, when you come across a dharmic concept, or probably most of all, when you come across an effective member of the Sangha, you meet the front of the stream. You meet the front of the Buddha's sasana, dispensation, <coughs> giving. And when you fully attend, you take your part, you meet him there. An awakened being is free. Yeah? The Buddha's not bound by time and space in the same way we are. As the traditional phrase we put it, his Buddha field is infinite, is endless. So in a sense, the Buddha is ever-present. So we drop identifying our limitations, we drop identifying with our little here and now preoccupations, we cease to rely entirely on ourselves, we'll start to rely on the Buddha, and we'll see from his perspective. More at home, we begin to relate from our own dynamic potential, rather than our stuck actuality. We can get caught up in problems about this, whether the Buddhas are real, whether the Bodhisattvas are real. But remember, it's not an abstract matter of is and isn't. It's about practice. It's about experience. The only question is, is it working? Is it bringing meaning and direction to your life? What is your actual experience with it? 
There's a great story that does around in the Buddhist world of a, a Westerner being taught by a Tibetan teacher and being given a sadhana, a practice of evoking a quality of enlightenment. In this case, Tara, there she is. Uh, and she's, he's getting into all sorts of ontological conundrums and he has to speak. <laughs> he has to speak to his teacher and says, I need to know, I mean, you know, it's, it's okay, but I need to know, is Tara real or not? Is what I'm visualising real or not? And his teacher kind of goes, hmm, he's met this many times before, and says, the difference between you and Tara is that she knows she's not real. <laughs> so, that's presence. But what if you don't feel the presence of the Buddha? What if he feels absent? Is it all over? We can be sitting here with the Buddha far from our experience, sitting feeling our shortcomings. What's all this talk of visions of Buddhas and visions and this and that being present? Oh great, another thing I can't do. Thanks. <laughs> you might be feeling that. Yeah. It's a bit like taking the practice when we take our precepts seriously. They don't just work when they're going lovely, when we're getting kinder and more generous and more content and more truthful. They're also working when we fall short of them. Yeah. They also noise us up when we fall short of what we're trying to take on. Then we become aware of our limitations. Yeah. And this causes us to reflect. And this causes us to resolve, to change our ways. It's like the work on the dark side and on the light side. So when we take the Buddha seriously, our sense of lack, a sense of absence, is, if you look at it, a sign of receptivity to something beyond us. It's also the Buddha working, the mindfulness of the Buddha working, our practice working. So if we say, which you hear not, you hear quite often, I am not imaginative. Well, where is this imagination of which you speak? If you're totally lost in your present situation, you'd be content with what you were with. You'd be like happy as pigs in mud. But if you're discontent, Oh, I don't feel very creative. Yeah? That discontent is the start of wisdom. It's the suffering that Alokadana was talking about yesterday. The start of moving through. Something more is biting in, but we feel it through the lack. On a positive note, you're in good company. Absence is an essential part of imagining the Buddha. There's those two or three hundred years of aniconic, imageless present representation of the Buddha. Where space opens up that pregnant space full of the qualities of the Buddha there's the open dimension of the blue sky in our visualisation practices it doesn't have to be blue it's gold it's black there's a silence at the end of a puja there's just sitting there's a Bamayan Buddha remember when the iconoclasts blew up the Buddha and I thought they've got it so wrong they don't understand Buddhism at all what was there was this fullness of space, which that big carving bit like that, isn't it? Hundreds of feet high. It spoke as much of the Buddha as before. It taught the Dharma at least as well. I think they're going to stick some big fiberglass copy up and think, that's as bad as blowing it up in the first place. That space was as much part of the stream of compassion as before. Here's the Dhammapada. That enlightened one whose sphere is endless whose victory is irreversible, 
and after whose victory no defilements remain to be conquered. By what track will you lead him astray, the trackless one? That enlightened one in whom there is not that ensnaring, entangling craving to lead anywhere in conditioned existence, and whose sphere is endless, by what track will you lead him astray, the trackless one? Here's my final poem by R.S. Thomas, the Welsh clergyman. It's a different religion, but it seems to point to this for me. It is this great absence that is like a presence that compels me to address it without hope of a reply. It is a room I enter from which someone has just gone, the vestibule for the arrival of one who has not yet come. I modernise the anachronism of my language, but he is no more here than before. Genes and molecules have no more power to call him up than the incense of the Hebrews at their altars. My equations fail, as my words do. What resources have I, other than the emptiness without him, of my whole being, a vacuum he may not abhor? So there we go. Experiences are preceded by mind, led by mind, and produced by mind. This mind and heart is intention. What it tends to, we become. And Dharma practice is using these tendencies to move to the positive and the skillful. The Buddha is a focus for this. If we dwell in the Buddha, intend towards him, go for refuge to him, we will become more like him. If we stop seeing the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha as static facts to be observed and start participating in them, it's up to us to make it so. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 